The views and opinions expressed in the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the producers, the affiliates, or digital platforms hosting this podcast. All content is for the purposes of education, conjecture, and at times entertainment. We promote inclusiveness and diversity. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Into the Deep with Jay Costa. Welcome to Into the Deep. I'm Jay Costa. I am thrilled about today's guest. He's an author and dedicated practitioner of yoga and meditation for almost 50 years. Today's guest is Joseph Selby. He's taught yoga and meditation all over the world and is a founding member of Ananda, a community and spiritual movement inspired by Yogananda. We go deep. I mean, really deep this episode. We talk quantum physics, consciousness, M-theory, transcendence, and we even talk about the yugas, which also happens to be the title of one of his books. We also talk about Joseph's recent book, The Physics of God, where Joseph simplifies the complex and clearly points to the congruence of evidence-based science and religion. And he even highlights a paradigm that unites rather than divides the two, and how the history of scientific thought is closely linked to that of spiritual ideologies with much more continuity than discontinuity. So, join me as we seek light and journey into the deep with Joseph Selby. Enjoy. For those who are listening and tuning in, uh, would you mind sharing a little bit of who you are and what it is you do? Okay. Well, uh, in many ways, my sort of college experience is a good reflection of who I am and what I do. So I went into college uh, thoroughly expecting to go into a uh, some kind of science degree and I found a really good program at the University of Colorado where I went to school to begin with on microbiology and it was a it was a great bunch of professors who were teaching it it was a hot new subject we were getting to this kind of dates me a bit we were talking about DNA double helix and just kind of the really exciting discoveries about how the cell worked and how uh, basically the, the core of microbiology worked at that micro level. But about halfway through my four years of college, even though I still really liked microbiology, I had some personal experiences, one of which was uh, had on a, a hallucinogenic trip which was really moving, really expanding, uh, really wonderful. Uh, you know, it's the kind of thing that I look back on over 50 years later and think, well, I wouldn't mind doing that again. Uh, that it was, it was really powerful. Mm. I was sort of a, 
I became the, the person that I didn't ever really know I was, but I realized this was a great person to be. Mm. Uh, I was kind, I was thoughtful, I was calm, uh, I was relaxed. Uh, for days following that experience, it stayed with me. So that and other things made me decide to move away from my microbiology major and go almost 180 degrees opposite into Greek studies, particularly uh, Greek philosophy, uh, because at that time, those were the philosophers I understand to have the most kind of, I don't know, sort of cosmic perspective mm -hmm. uh, that I was looking for. And so I made that switch and that carried me on to uh, going to Berkeley, where I then went into Indian philosophy, because I really uh, began to feel that the uh, studies of yoga and the, the accompanying practices and meditation, et cetera, was really what I was interested in. Mm. And those two sides of me are still there all these many years later. I have always stayed with uh, an interest, deep interest in science and the unfolding paradigms of science. I was just thrilled by uh, the Fritjof Kopra book, The Tao of Physics, which sort of launched this whole genre in which my book sort of fits. And yet at the same time, what I really started doing was meditating. And that became my life. That eventually led me to living in a spiritual community where I still am today, a community called Ananda in Northern California that is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. And I've done all sorts of things within the context of the community. I've started centers in uh, Italy, in Seattle. I've taught yoga and meditation all over the world. Uh, I've raised a family. I've started a business. So it has been a, a long and wonderful and fruitful and interesting and fascinating kind of life uh, path for me. But all the while, the others stayed with me in the uh, sense of being fascinated by science. And then in, I think it was the early 2000s, I started getting serious about uh, putting those two together and writing uh, a book, which went through many thoughts and iterations and finally ended up as the physics of God to show that the, the world of science, the discoveries of science really support deep teachings in religion, or if you wanna be more exact, uh, experiential spirituality. And the experiences and the, the teachings of saints and sages really also, on the other hand, support the deep theories that you'll find in physics, for example, or in medicine. And that by far more, far more than in conflict with each other, they're actually quite complementary. 
So that's that's kind of my background. That's how I got here on the way. As I mentioned already, I raised a family. I started a business that was, you know, took took an early ride on the um, dot com roller coaster and had a business with 40 people. We were doing uh, work for companies like uh, Wells Fargo and Monster.com and many others that were gigantic corporations, as well as some small stuff. And that was a very interesting ride for me as well. Um, kind of put to use a lot of the things I learned in meditation about how to you know, have positive attitudes, keep your energy high, mm-hmm. uh, use your intuition in a way that that blends in with the kind of uh, more definite side of business that you have to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. So that was great. Raising a family was wonderful. Uh, and now I'm uh, mostly retired from both raising a family and uh, the business that I had. And that has really given me the space to concentrate on writing. So I have Physics of God out. Another book is coming out in the fall that's going to be focused on neuroscience. I'm finishing up another book um, by this spring, if all goes well, that focuses on uh, medicine and the biochemical model and how that fits or doesn't fit with uh, spirituality. Mm. So it's... Doors opened, and uh, I I raced through the to take on yet another like third or fourth career in uh, in being a writer. So that's kind of the the big picture of who I am and what I do. Wow, very vast, and uh, I thank you for sharing first and foremost. That's my wonderful. Yeah, I I, I love how. Um, you're able to bridge that gap uh, between, you know, what's, you know, the evidence-based sciences, as well as, you know, you say the experiential realm of belief or right. religions, right? Um, right? Something that's seemingly found more so in more of the esoteric teachings or texts. Yes, uh, very much so. Um, the way I like to explain it to people is if to find the congruence of science and religion, you have to do two things. First, you have to separate science's discoveries from their interpretations. Mm -hmm. So even within science, even within the, the body of people who would consider themselves serious scientists, there are a lot of disagreements on what certain discoveries indicate. You know, most famously, quantum physics has all these interpretations. You've got the Copenhagen interpretation, you got the Bohmian interpretation, and on and on. There's a dozen, some people think there are 20. Uh, but that is a very good example of how the exact same discoveries or facts can then be interpreted to mean a wide variety of things. So one of the basic interpretations that you have to realize is an interpretation is that what we think of as science today, you know, if if you're in a conversation with someone and they say, well, science tells us this, what they're really talking about is 
scientific materialism. So scientific materialism is a name uh, given to this philosophical perspective by scientists themselves. And essentially, scientific materialism says that everything that is or ever will be is the result of matter and energy interactions. And that's it. There's, there's nothing else possible. So that interpretation of all these millions of discoveries that science has made over the last 100 or 200 years just eliminates the possibility that consciousness can exist as a separate reality, right? Mm -hmm. So for most hardcore scientists, and, and they are kind of a core, according to a Pew research study done in the like 2008, 2007, somewhere in there, only 41% of self-identified scientists held that view. So what this means is that um, a majority of scientists, um, well, a majority of 51%, slim majority, out and out believe that their consciousness is beyond the body, that there is a higher power, that there is God. So even within you know, that world of science, there are a lot of people who see the possibility, see the door open for there being a, a view that includes God or includes uh, spiritual experience or includes higher consciousness. Uh, and so in order to get to this place where you could have science and religious be, religion be congruent, you need to really closely examine what is this interpretation of science? What is this statement about science uh, based on? Is it based on this core belief in scientific materialism or is it more open? Mm -hmm. And if you can kind of push that scientific materialism aside and take a fresh look at you know, pretty much everything that is said about science, you get a very different view. Then the second thing you need to do is you need to get past sectarianism. So sectarianism is really a way of saying uh, the major religions and their interpretations of what their particular savior and saints have to say about uh, the meaning of religion. So religions tend to uh, say that their path and only their path is the right one. Where the saints and sages who have inner experience say that all religions are one. All religions are different ways of approaching the same thing and that it's only the Again, the interpreters, the theologians who come in after 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, and they say, no, no, this is what Christianity really means. Um, and, you know, you can forget that 
Jesus said this particular thing, the real thing that you need to, to understand is you've got to believe in Jesus Christ. Hmm. But he never really says you have to believe in Jesus Christ anywhere in his teachings. Right. He says you need to get to know God. You need to become one with God. And so you push away those doctrinaire, dogmatic teachings, generally of the major religions, and then start looking at the inner traditions, or as they're often called, as you mentioned, esoteric uh, traditions, and tune into how they talk about spirituality. And you begin to see this great deal of agreement. Mm -hmm. There was a, a joke made years ago, you may have already seen it, but was said that if all the saviors of all the founders of all the world's religions were to get together, they'd all just look at each other and laugh <laughs> because everybody in the world is being told that there are all these huge differences between them, but they know that they're just matter of language, culture, era, uh, and emphasis, some religions do emphasize a different aspect of what you need to do to find God, like the Buddhists, you know, say you really have to get past attachment, you have to get past attachment to yourself, you have to get past attachment to your own ideas. And Jesus said, you need to love thy neighbor as thyself. But he also said, you need to love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And the Buddhists say you need to become absolutely still in the presence. So with an open-hearted, open-minded interpretation of the original scriptures, not the, the, the add-ons that have been put there by theologians, you begin to see this really common thread between all experiential traditions. And, you know, in a nutshell, they are that, you know, we are in our essence, divine beings. Uh, we don't know that because we're too caught up in our senses and our bodies. Um, that we're not only divine beings, but we're immortal beings that there is life after death that will take us to another realm. These are all in the esoteric teachings, as well as in various aspects of the main religions, but they're just not emphasized in the same way. In fact, what they do is they emphasize the differences. They say, yes. well, Christianity believes this, and Hindus believe that, therefore they couldn't possibly be you know, coming from the same understanding of truth and reality. But if you go with the original teachings, it's a good way to describe it. The original findings, the original conversations that these teachers had with their disciples, you see more and more of this congruence. So then once you get there and you've got the scientific materialists separated out of the picture, it's much easier to see how science and experiential spirituality can fit together. Yeah. It, and you're right because, you know, it's so easy for 
I guess for humans in most societies, we compartmentalize everything, we categorize everything, and we, we look for those differences between things versus those commonalities. I think it's just innate in who we are. Um, and it's interesting. Why do you think that is? I think it's human nature. I mean, it's, uh, I mentioned that one of the things that is sort of commonly understood in the esoteric traditions is that uh, we get attached to this smaller expression of ourselves. And mm. that doesn't allow us to see the greater expression of who we are. So it's just a form of attachment. Mm. So humans are very prone to attachment. Um, you know, you give somebody days to weeks to be with somebody or doing something or reading a particular kind of book or whatever it might be, you'll find that they've become attached to that person, those ideas uh, very quickly. It, it happens, it happens fast. So if you multiply that times a lifetime, then people have very strong views, develop strong very views about what is or isn't truth. And I mean, it's kind of no more evident, I think, than in politics, the, the degree to which people become attached to uh, how they view what is the right thing for America or the world or climate change or whatever. Right. And it's just kind of the, the way we are. I think part of what you get out of meditation, which is a, at the heart of all uh, experiential traditions, is that you become less attached naturally. You're able to step back and see things in a more uh, neutral or, or uh, fair-minded kind of point of view. You know, that, well, I may think this is the very best thing, but people, other people think differently. So why get upset about it? They're, they're always going to be these kind of differences. And it allows you to live, I think, in my experience, a much happier life because you're not constantly wishing that things were other than they are. You're not constantly wishing that those damn fill in the blank people, you know, be it politics or sports or anything, medicine, you know, pick your subject uh, right. that you just wish they didn't think the way they do and would jolly well learn and understand that your way is the clearest and best way, obviously, to understand it. So, uh, you know, I'm exaggerating and making fun of it, but it runs it runs through uh, human experience. I agree. Um, and very well articulated. Uh, shifting back a little bit, and we talked a little bit about um, just, I guess, with your authorship. Um, I know you had co-authored uh, co-authored a book uh, several years ago, uh, The Yugas. And um, yeah. for those that aren't familiar with those esoteric writings in the Vedic texts, um, like not knowing about the difference between Kali Yuga and what we're going into now, would you care to 
explain to people that 24,000 some odd year cycle and the cyclical nature of it. Yeah. So it may at first glance or first thought seem like a pretty big difference in what I write about. Uh, On the one hand, physics of God that covers quantum physics and the connections between science and spirituality. And on the other hand, uh, the yugas, which is a tradition in India that uh, history, human development is cyclical, that there have been higher ages in the past and there will be higher ages in the future. And then we'll just keep right on going around that 24,000 year cycle. And in the far future, it will once again begin to uh, lose the high quality of development that it had and it will gradually sink into a lower phase. And that this repeats itself uh, over and over and over again. But the connection that I have to both is one is they're both grounded in spiritual traditions, uh, the, the two books. And I do bring in quite a bit of science, particularly archeology. span When I was studying uh, Greek philosophy and Indian philosophy, I was simultaneously studying uh, Greek archeology span and Indian archeology. span So I had a good background hmm. in those subjects. And had a strong interest in anything old, whether it was in India or in Greece or anywhere else. And then I encountered this description of the of the 24,000 year cycle. And immediately I could see how a lot of things that I knew from my college studies actually fit really well into that cycle. So I think the place that most people kind of get excited by it or notice it or, or, or see how it uh, intrigues them as well is when we go back into the past, we find these uh, extraordinary anomalies where uh, apparently people 6,000 years ago and longer could do things, new things that according to the Darwinian sort of straight line of development, they shouldn't have been able to, to, to do or know. So one of my favorite examples, and I think many people's favorite examples is the Great Pyramid. Correct. So yeah. the Great Pyramid uh, was built somewhere around 3000 BC. Um, mainstream archeologists will say it's closer to 20, 600 BC. I tend to think it's older than that because there were some, you know, there's an old saying in archaeology that you can't date rock, but you can in some ways date rock. Or in the case of the pyramid, you can date the mortar that is between the rocks, between the stones. And so Carbon dating the mortar that was between some of the blocks on the interior of the Great Pyramid uh, gave it a date of around 3000 BC. So the reason why you date mortar is that it has charcoal in it. 
and charcoal mm. comes from trees and trees are primarily organic matter like that are primarily how carbon dating is accomplished. So I think it's a little older. Uh, people love to quibble about it. But nonetheless, 3000 BC, uh, over 5,000 years ago now, the Great Pyramid was the most accurately built structure on earth and still is. So it's huge for one thing. I'll just rattle off a few of my favorite facts here. Please. Uh, it takes up more than an acre, the base of it. And along the length of the bottom edge, the degree, the, the, the degree to which it is level only varies by like three eighths of an inch over the entire distance of, I forget, it's six or 700 feet uh, or more. It has, I would love to have seen it. Maybe in a past life I did see it, but it was covered with white limestone when it was all finished at first. Now we just see this kind of stair step uh, and, and it's rough, right? It looks kind of beat up. But when it was done, they put white limestone in that filled up the, the angles so that it was a perfectly sm flat, smooth surface all the way to the apex. And you would have been able to see it gleaming in the sunshine miles away. Mm. And the even with the few limestone blocks that are remaining from the cladding, you can't get a piece of paper in between the joints. And there is no uh, joining. There is no mortar. It's, it's just the way it has been uh, chiseled or formed that allows them to fit together that well. Uh, there's all sorts of mathematical uh, sort of, what do I want to say? You know, you can take the measurements of the uh, base, all the way around the base, and one diagonal from a corner to the peak, and that has the ratio of pi to a high degree of exactitude. Uh, it's almost exactly oriented to north-south. And it probably was, in fact, exactly oriented north and south. If you account for the fact that it's 5,000 years old and the Earth's uh, rotation has changed slightly. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of things in the building, in the design that don't at all fit the idea that people sh just shortly out of being hunter-gatherers, literally mainstream architecture or uh, archaeology has it that the hunter-gatherer phase didn't 
come to an end until like 4,000 BC. Mm -hmm. uh, estimates vary a lot. And 3,000 BC was early, early in what's considered to be city development time. That they were just coming together, building rough, rough buildings on riversides in collections and learning to uh, grow food, etc. So you go from that level of what is commonly considered to be, you know, the first stirrings of civilization, and suddenly you have this gigantic building, and it was. It was the tallest building in the world until like the 17th century AD. It's just this hard to explain thing. So that's just one example of why people tend to think, well, they, they must have known stuff. There must have been some way in which people in that era could have known more than our Darwinian logic would indicate they they would know. Mm -hmm. So you can go even farther back. You can find things like uh, Gobekli Tepe. So Gobekli, Gobekli Tepe is a, a series of circular constructions in on a hilltop in central Turkey. And those central constructions are 10,000 years old. So way, way beyond what uh, is even remotely considered a late date by mainstream uh, archaeologists. It's just it's just way past anything. And these circular constructions have uh, carved bas reliefs. They have uh, terrazzo floors. Uh, they're fairly sophisticated. I, they're nothing compared to the pyramid, but for that far back in time, they're fairly sophisticated. And then you have sort of non-building uh, artifacts like the Vedas of India. So the Vedas of India have descriptions of astronomical events in them that are really quite uh, precise because if you read it, if you were untutored in it, you read it, you would see that, uh, you know, this deity eclipsed that deity and, um, you know, things went bad or things went well, whatever it is. But what they're really talking about are the names given to positions of the moon and positions of the stars that are given uh, the names of deities, just like Jupiter is Jupiter and Saturn is Saturn. Right. Um, the tradition was passed on <laughs> for a long time. But uh, astronomers have been able to, and they're called archaeoastronomers, have been able to sort of dial the clock back, you know, mm. what the position of the Earth would have been in order for that to have been seen, what uh, era that would have been because the entire star pattern has to change. That is the background for what they're talking about. Right. And 
Many of them are uh, six and 7,000 BC, the estimates for when this astronomical event was described. So there's good evidence to suggest that the Vedas were conceived uh, and probably given, not written. There was a long oral tradition with the uh, Vedas. So one, you have tremendous age. The other is you have tremendous accuracy. Mm. The language, the Vedas, Sanskrit, has no known uh, proto-language that existed before it. It appears to come completely perfect out of the box. And the form of Sanskrit has been preserved minutely because of the Vedas and because of a tradition where the families, mostly ran in families, that were given the task of preserving the accuracy of the Vedas, Hmm. learned 10 different ways to chant every sloka so that if something had gone wrong at a previous period, one of those 10 ways of chanting the shloka would reveal an inaccuracy. So to this day, it remains the most well-preserved ancient language on earth. And it's also the most complex and accurate. It's so complex and so accurate that um, programmers who wanted to create new programming languages that would have the least amount of ambiguity in them would go and study Sanskrit grammar to understand how it uh, avoided that any kind of ambiguity. Uh, I read once, I, I can't back this up with, with uh, more than just having read it once, but there's only one word in all of the Vedas that's in dispute as to what it means. Hmm. So miraculously well-preserved, extremely accurate, and 9,000 years old. So I I was fascinated by all that. Yeah. You can also take the yugas towards the future and you can say, well, if these different ages that are uh, suggested exist by the yugas, and those are Satya Yuga, which is the highest yuga, Treta, next one down, Dwapara Yuga, next down, and then Kali Yuga, the lowest. So at the peak of Satya Yuga, mankind is at its highest level of development. And at the uh, nadir of Kali Yuga, mankind is at whole, is at its lowest point of development. But then it swings up again. So uh, according to the version of the yugas that I uh, follow, that swing up again started in 500 AD. And 
the low period, Kali Yuga lasted until 1700 AD, and then it moved us into Dwapara Yuga. So according to this uh, view of things, which came from uh, Sri Teshwar in the book, The Holy Science, we are now in Dwapara Yuga. And Dwapara Yuga is uh, where Kali Yuga is considered to be the age of material awareness uh, or, or sensory awareness that the average person um, was unable to know anything past what they could, you know, touch, feel, smell, taste. Mm. They had no kind of subtle understanding of the nature of the world. And then it moved into Dwapara Yuga at 1700. And there was a transition period until by 1900, we were fully into uh, this new age and this new awareness that it brought, which is an age of energy. Mm. So by 1900, we had gone from steam power to understanding the laws of electromagnetism to Einstein's uh, special theory of relativity, where we learned that matter is an illusion. Matter is congealed energy. And then we've gone, you know, far and far beyond that. But that knowledge, that ability to comprehend is finer. It's more subtle. Uh, we're, 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 we're able to comprehend the notion that there are subtler forces that underpin matter. Mm where none of those subtle forces were understood or taught in that period of Kali Yuga. There's another Yuga coming ahead, which is Treta Yuga, but not for a very long time yet. Uh, it will be, I have to remember my addition here, 4100 <laughs> 40, AD. So a couple thousand more years ahead, <laughs> we will move into Treta Yuga. Mm. You have to remember the whole cycle is 24,000 years. So right. they're, they're pretty big chunks of time. Yeah. Treta Yuga is um, uh, hallmarked by mankind, will be hallmarked by mankind's ability to uh, understand and perceive thought. So it is said by Sri Teshwar that mental telepathy will be the primary way in which people communicate. Mm. Uh, but thought, thought is powerful. You know, the thoughts we have about ourselves determine a lot about ourselves. So yeah. in an age when people can, to some degree, control their thoughts, uh, they can have an, a big impact on the world around them. And then the highest age comes at 76. 7700 AD when we go into Satya Yuga. And Satya Yuga is said to be an age when mankind as a whole can comprehend God as spirit directly, mm -hmm. that it won't be just a theory, uh, but that uh, most people alive at the time would be able to comprehend and feel and experience God's presence. So that's a fairly rapid nutshell uh, description with some uh, fun bits. 
to give you an idea what the, the yugas are about. Yeah. The reason I said uh, when I started describing it that the yugas and the physics of God are not maybe that far apart is because I do bring in a fair amount of science into uh, the yugas. And mm -hmm. I think that there are strong scientific underpinnings for much of what is uh, taught by uh, Sri Akteshwar and others about this uh, cycle. Yeah, it's, it's one of the reasons why I brought it up was because I felt there was such a parallel between, you know, the yugas and then, you know, seeing what you're, you've written in the physics of God and just that correlation of that shift, whether it's in consciousness, that shift in energy, or maybe even the realization and awareness of consciousness and energy and how uh, you go into even with like M theory. Uh, right. And just kind of yeah. these, these subtle energies. And we think of like the laws of thermodynamics and energy shifting and moving. It's not destroyed or created. It's just, it's moving. And if you're breaking these particles and smashing these particles, it's just smaller and smaller, but they're there. Um, and I just found that I, I personally see that correlation between, you know, what, what you were doing with the yugas and as well as, you know, what you're I guess your spiritual path and your scientific path, you were able to just, it coalesced so beautifully in the physics of God. So I, that's why I brought it up. And I, I feel like in the physics of God, you were able to really articulate something that in our age now, it's people are far more prepared to understand and really grasp what it is that they're feeling and experiencing. Yeah. Even 50 years ago, there were fewer people that. Right grasped it. Uh, one of the, you probably know this, but the fastest growing uh, quote unquote religion today is not a religion. And it's a category that, that um, the, the uh, people who, you know, go out and do these, uh, the word is eluding me, you know, where they question everybody uh, is that um, Spiritual but not religious is mm. the fastest growing category. And I think what that is, is it's experiential spirituality and right. not religion. That people want whatever effort they put in to life in that direction, they want it to give them a personal benefit, a direct and and knowable benefit they don't want to simply believe that when they die they'll have made you know taken you know rattled the dice and thrown them for the right religion did i pick the right religion i got right. in heaven i think people want something to happen now that gives them a tangible uh confirmation Mm. that these teachings are valid and real. So uh, I think more and more people are turning in that direction. But this is a new category. This is something that really has just taken off in the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years, as, as long as I've been hearing. There probably were people in that category who weren't, weren't yet categorized. Sure. Uh, but it certainly wasn't something that was talked about until relatively recently. So things do change, even though the yugas have really long 
cycles. We're talking thousands of years mm. with some of them. Nonetheless, you can see incremental change. So that's great. You mentioned, I wanted to get this in before sure. we had to wrap up, but you mentioned M-theory. Yes, absolutely. And uh, it's one of my favorite things to bring up to talk about how that congruence between uh, science and religion that I mentioned before mm -hmm. really shows up. So uh, several of the things that religion says is true, like life after death and immortality, um, really get a confirmation for their the possibility of their existence in M-theory. So M-theory, for, for those who haven't read uh, about it or haven't read recently, M-theory is one of the most accepted disciplines within string theory. Mm -hmm. And string theory uh, has gotten a lot of uh, uh, press over the years, basically because it uh, talks about these little tiny rings and strings, which kind of fascinates people. And it also alludes to, uh, and I think this was something I ran into again and again and again for decades, it has multiple dimensions that there's not just the three dimensions that we know uh, in our, uh, our physical world, but there are seven more, 10 more. And that always makes people scratch their head. <laughs> You know, right. how can there be a 10th dimension? What does that mean? Uh, because the others, the three that we're familiar with, are tangible. Mm. You know, we can clearly understand that uh, you've got up and down and left and right. And uh, so the dimensions are clear to us. And we also live in a world of time. So we can understand time as a dimension, right. perhaps, although that even is a little more abstract. <laughs> sure. But how you can have you know, up to 10, five more, eight more, whatever, dimensions beyond the three uh, is difficult to grasp. But if we can take a step back and examine why string theory came about, it's a little easier to get a handle on it. So string theory was in many ways, the result of the inability of physicists to unite relativity and quantum physics. So as is often said, uh, relativity tends to really explain the astronomical sized world well, and quantum physics is able to describe the atomic and subatomic realms well, but not vice versa. If you use the laws of relativity to try to describe the behavior uh, inside an atom, it not only doesn't work, it kind of blows up. You get all these uh, infinities and physicists hate getting inf infinities in their uh, equation. And then the same holds true for uh, quantum physics. If you try to apply the laws of quantum physics to relativity, in other words, uh, what happens to gravity in a black hole, then quantum physics doesn't know what to do with it. 
uh, it too doesn't have equations that make any sense when applied at those scales. So string theory, uh, among other reasons, came into being because it was thought, well, we have these two clearly working theories. Mm. You know, relativity has given us incredibly exact uh, measurements about all sorts of things like light bending around the sun. And quantum physics has given us computer chips. So we know they both work, right? They both describe measurable aspects of reality. But because they don't come together, somebody thought, well, maybe there's a, a third level of theory that would work with either of them. Even if they can't work with that, each other, maybe there's a third level. Uh, as an example, I use if, imagine that uh, Chinese and English couldn't be translated into each other. And that's not true, but imagine they couldn't be. Right. And somebody said, okay, well, let's invent a, a, a language that if we translate Chinese into that, we can then translate from that into English. Mm. So string theory was sort of like that. It had other purposes. There were discoveries that were made that made people think uh, this was a direction to go. Mm. But there was a lot of hope that that string theory would, would solve this uh, irreconcilable difference between relativity and um, quantum physics. So... One of the basic premises of string theory is that there's another level of reality that is filled with little tiny rings and strings of energy, thus string theory, that are so tiny, the rings, the individual rings and strings are so tiny that they, in comparison to an atom, well, let me go the other way that the human body, uh, which I don't know how to do this, that the atom mm -hmm. is on a scale that's a billion times smaller than the human body. Mm -hmm. So atoms are measurable at nanoscales, one billionth of a meter kind of scale. And strings and rings are considered to be a billion times smaller than the atom. Mm. So this makes this several things happen here. One is that they're not measurable. There's nothing we have that could possibly measure anything that small. Um, it makes them incredibly dense with energy. So the higher the wavelength, the frequency, which is what you have to have to have something that small, uh, has packs more energy than does lower frequencies. Right. So that was the basic idea. And then string theory evolved into a number of different directions, one of which was M-theory. So M-theory came along and said, not only does that energy exist, but it doesn't exist within the physical universe. It exists beyond the physical universe. 
And it exists in what M theorists refer to as the bulk, although I think that's the worst name ever given to a really cool theory. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the bulk is uh, basically they're saying only a tiny amount of that energy uh, intrudes into the space that we know as the physical universe. Mm. And that the far greater amount of it exists non-locally. It exists beyond three-dimensional reality, which has local laws. So a local law, uh, for example, is something like magnetism. The strength of a magnet um, goes down by the inverse square law. So it goes rapidly less and less. Mm. Whereas uh, if there were magnetism in the bulk, it would never lose any power because there is no distance in the bulk. So I'm going to go into a lot of head-scratching things about the bulk. There's no space. There's no time. There's no distance. There's only two dimensions, not three. Because two dimensions is all that's required for energy to exist in. And thus, there's not a third dimension that allows for there to be space. And there is enough room, if you want to think of it that way, it's not really a good way to think about it, but it's difficult to think about a two-dimensional reality without applying our three-dimensional tendency to visualize. But within the bulk, there is room for essentially an infinite number of additional universes. So our universe, we've been taught, is mind-bendingly, incomprehensibly large, right? So now they're talking about a reality that could fit in within it uh, essentially an, an infinite number of other universes. So it's it's a big theory, if nothing else. And in addition, they surmise that the bulk is layered, what are called brains, that you have the lowest layer, and by lowest, it's closest to the physical universe. Okay. Has the... the um, has higher energy density than the earth, but lower than any other layer in that bulk. And so the next layer up has even greater energy density and up and up and up. Uh, Some scenarios have there being seven layers in the bulk. There are some that have 15, uh, but they all need layers in order to make the math work. And the math has to eventually be able to accurately describe the relationship between the physical universe and the bulk. Hmm. So it it can't have just any arbitrary amount of energy um, because then the equations don't work. So there's a, you know, kind of a back and forth that goes on to make it so that these these two concepts can actually hang together. 
The other thing that comes out of M theory, uh, which is a favorite theory for people to scratch their heads over, is the notion that our universe is a holographic projection. Right. So a lot of people, you know, just discard it and laugh at it because they think it's the uh, invention of crazy people who <laughs> have been, you know, watching too much science fiction right. or whatever. But it actually came out of M theory. Mm -hmm. M theory, which, you know, if you're going to have really brilliant minds in any field, you're going to find a lot of them in the field of M theory. So for them, the notion that the world, the universe rather, is a holographic projection is not just a cool idea, but it's a necessity. Without that, what they call the holographic principle, the whole relationship between their idea of the bulk and our physical universe sort of falls apart. So those two things, layers and holographic projection have this great congruence with religion. Every religion in the world has layers of heaven. And some like Hinduism have seven layers. Um, Christianity, depending on what you read, has three layers. They also talk about the highest heavens. Um, the uh, Muslims have seven levels. The Buddhists have 15, sometimes 25 layers of heavens. But it's common to all religions and even to all experiential uh, spiritual traditions. Sure. So it's, it's significant that it would be so consistent across all those uh, religious practices and major religions. These layers fit uncannily well with the notion of M theory that there are layers of different density energies in the bulk and that the heavens also not only say that there are multiple heavens, they say each one is higher than the last. Mm. And that the higher, the highest heaven is always the most spiritual, the most full of the most wisdom, the most uh, highest level of realization. So in M theory, the layers, start off with the lowest density of energy and therefore the lowest frequency right. and gradually increase energy density and energy frequency as you go up through the layers. So that's one amazing uh, consistency. The other is the thought that we have astral bodies. So if the heavens are real and the heavens are in the bulk, then when we die, we reappear in the heavens in bodies much like this one. So what this suggests is that our body that exists in the heavens, our body that exists in one of these layers of M theory is our hologram. 
and that our hologram is projecting our body in this physical universe. So our physical body is a holographic projection. Our spiritual body, our astral body, our etheric body that exists in those heavens is the hologram. And that we live in both worlds all the time. We have one foot in heaven and one foot uh, on the earth at all times. And that we can't exist without our hologram, our astral body existing in the heavens. If there were no hologram body, there would be no astrally projected physical body. So I just liked the neat connections that M M theory made for some of the basic um, tenets of religion, that there is a place for the heavens. A lot of scientists say, well, you know, come on guys, get serious here. There can't be heavens because see, I mean, where are they? Mm. Well, M theory unknowingly, unintendingly said, look, they could be two dimensional energies of uh, realms of pure energy, which is how the heavens are described. If you read um, the experiences of near-death experiencers, they often say it's just pure energy there, just pure light. There's nothing like this sort of cumbersome, clumsy matter that we have to deal with when we're in our physical bodies. And the higher teachings, the more esoteric teachings of spiritual uh, traditions indicate that our physical body is dependent on our astral body, that you can't have it without the other. Um, And therefore that holographic projection concept gives that some plausibility that we're always projecting our own physical body into being while we have our simultaneous identity in the astral. So that's some of it. Uh, some of these things are a little bit hard to do to describe sure. uh, in, with just words and no, <laughs> you know, no time to really describe them well. So I hope your listeners don't get too confused, but there's a lot more uh, of these kind of congruences that I explore in the book that I found um, amazingly good. Yeah. I didn't have to like stretch things that I found to, you know, with the greatest of effort, make it fit some religious belief. Sure. I found this, you know, as I say, unintending to do it. M theorists gave us a place for the heaven. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a pretty remarkable one because it includes this notion of um, holographic projections. And it includes this. And, and the M theorists themselves play around with this notion of bulk beings, of, of you know, could there be uh, sentient beings that live in the bulk? So they themselves, you know, sort of question, have we, have we 
opened up the possibility of higher levels of reality, not just for sort of blind forces of energy, but mm. actual sentient beings. Which again, you know, ties into so many different teachings, right? Like you said, you didn't yeah. have to stretch when you think, and it's, it's if you have time, I, I have time. I don't know if you have time, but when I, I think about the, when I think about M theory and I think about, you know, which you, I feel like you illustrated quite well. Um, you know, we think about a lot of those tenets of as above, so below. We think of our yeah. higher self, you know, super consciousness, all of these things that really tie in, you know, when we talk about layers of heavens or even just we can go to Nordic nine realms. Are we There's so many different belief systems that have been passed on that are describing exactly like you said, the science has come out and said. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel yeah, it's like a great fit. Science and religion are a great fit rather than what most people think uh, that it's just the opposite. Right. And it, it, there was a point in time, you know, where it was both of those were seen as, as one. It was a, you know, it was somewhere along the lines where it got separated through, you know, maybe yeah. organized religions and, um, and, you know, personal agendas or, you know, political agendas and whatnot, but, you know, yeah. what, you, what you're describing and, and what you illustrate quite well in, in the physics of God, your, your book. Um, I think it's just, it's so well put together and it really does bridge that gap in, in the, the, and the vernacular you choose is so, it, it really puts it in very understandable and digestible terms, in my opinion. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you said you've got some new stuff that you're working on, some new books that you're you're writing. Mm -hmm. uh, you have multiple projects going on currently, or well, I have one that's done awesome. and is already uh, at the publisher, going through the the publisher pipeline, and it comes out in uh, September of this awesome. year, and it's titled uh, "Breaking Through the Limits of Your Brain." And it has a lot of focus on neuroscience. So one of the things I wanted to explore was essentially how does higher consciousness interface with the physical body and the brain? Mm. You know, so I believe there is higher consciousness, as obviously you do. Uh, but but what really happens there? Because the brain is a physical object. The brain is a cool physical object. It's got synapses and it's got a hundred billion neurons. Uh, it has the potential for each one of those neurons in the brain to connect to more than one other neuron. And in fact, a single neuron can connect up to 10,000 other neurons so that when it fires, its chemical, electrochemical message goes to 10,000 other neurons in your brain. Uh, they don't all do that, but that's the potential that every neuron in the brain has. So when you make estimates of the potential, there are trillions of circuits of brain cells. 
So it's easy to see why uh, scientists tend to think that material scientists tend to think that somehow or another, all those 10 or 100 billion neurons and an additional 900 billion other connections to make trillions of, of interconnections in the brain somehow or another give rise to consciousness. But there's really no good theories as to how that happened. There's a lot of speculation. I use theory in a very specific way. Theory is testable. Mm -hmm. There really aren't any testable theories uh, at this point. There are some directions they're going. There are major speculations they have. But so far, they're a long way from being able to get any of these uh, to bear fruit in, in something really solid that says, look, we, we saw a spark of that consciousness. We saw it, maybe it's not the whole picture, but we saw it, but they haven't even seen a spark. They don't, they don't know what could possibly spark it or, or how that could work. So I look a lot into that and um, learned, not to my surprise, that one, those, those speculations they do have don't add up, but two, that there is a lot of support for the notion that consciousness exists beyond the brain. And you find this in the field of psi, uh, which you know, is sort of the latest way to, to describe it, uh, coming out of the paranormal and the paranatural and the parapsychological. Mm -hmm which I think were basically, all those names, I think were hatchet jobs done on those fields by the scientific community. Mm -hmm. Because if you say that you're a paranormal psychology, uh, uh, scientist, that that's it. You just have zero credibility with almost anyone. So the serious researchers in that field now try to stay away from those names but they have a ton of really good evidence yeah. that indicates um, this independence of, of consciousness from the body and the brain and some indications of how that consciousness interacts with the brain. So that was, that was great to discover. Then I got into the workings of the brain and I think that the most interesting level of uh, discovery for me in my research was that when we're born, more than any other animal on earth, we have a completely blank slate in our mind. We have a mind that takes care of the, what are called the autonomic functions, breathing, digestion, uh, heart rate, all the things that go on behind the scenes that we're not aware of, but that keep us alive all the time. Right. You're born with those working and intact, but you're not born with any voluntary instinct. The only one they've ever been able to 
convince themselves that they have is that you you clutch, that you know how to, to close your fingers and grab something. But otherwise, everything else, looking around, connecting what you're seeing to uh, what you're thinking, uh, your awareness of the rest of the world, ability to move your hands and arms and walk, all those things you have to learn. Mm. And it takes the first six years of your life, basically, yeah. where a baby deer can run full tilt to elude a predator almost minutes after they're born. So they, you know, they know it's a predator. Right. They know they should run. They know they should hide. They know how to hide. These things exist as preset circuits in their brain, but we don't have any of those. We do very, very little, if not absolutely nothing instinctively. So we build all these circuits. And then as we uh, get older, we start to uh, refine them down to the key circuits that we use. There, there's a, like a explosion of circuitry built in the child's mind between one and six or zero and six. Hmm. And most of those circuits end up not being used and, and then they, they gradually degrade and go away. So we just keep the ones that work in other words. Okay, right. So that was fascinating to me that, that there are no, we don't do anything by instinct. And so I applied that to my understanding of esoteric teacher teachings by saying to myself, well, that means that we can create all the new circuits that we need. And we're circuit creators. Mm. If you do something for even a little while, you create a new circuit. Right. Or dozens of circuits. And so if you meditate, you create a new circuit. And that that circuit connects your mind to higher consciousness. That the higher consciousness lies beyond the brain. And, but that's your, that's your route to get there. Right. Uh, and that you're also able to do or, or experience many things that the brain can't do because of that connection to non-local higher consciousness. Um, we don't, our, our, our brain can't create emotions. Our brain can't create thoughts. It can't create memories. Your brain can seek out those thoughts, emotions, and memories that lie in the two-dimensional, non-local world that we were just discussing, where you have your, your one foot in heaven, but the brain doesn't create any of it. And so this interaction between physical brain and local, with local rules and non-local astral body and non-local ways of behavior also works to, under, to, to let you understand that relationship. So that book, uh, I don't have time to, to really give you everything. It would take uh, hours and hours. 
But that's the book that is in the pipeline. And then the book I'm working on now is about um, basically it gives you a scientific support for alternative or complementary healing. So why does working with your thoughts or your emotions or your convictions rather than just taking pills or doing exercise, why does that have such a big impact on the physical body? Mm. And how can you use it for your own uh, health and happiness? Right. So I'm in the middle of that book. That's fantastic. I'm looking forward to both of those. Well, thank you. <laughs> That's thank great. You. Uh, where can folks uh, where can folks find you on the internet? Uh, I have a website which is called uh, www.physicsandgod. Not physics of God. Unfortunately, somebody already had that. Physicsandgod.com. And you can find me through the yugas at just the yugas.com. And either one of those websites will give you contact information for me, et cetera. Uh, and both of those websites will tell you where to get the books. But, you know, simplest said, they're available on Amazon. They're available as Kindle and uh, Audible books. And they're in many bookstores. That's awesome. And um, you also do the uh, Expanding Light Retreat. Is that correct? Well, uh, the where I live here at Ananda yeah. Community has a retreat called okay. Expanding Light. And I often give classes there okay. uh, and sometimes weekend workshops. So if you search for me, you'll uh, you know just do a Joseph Selby search on Google. You'll probably find your way to the expanding light, uh, but I don't have anything happening anytime soon because of the pandemic. Okay, has pretty much, you know, taken the the business away from the expanding light, unfortunately. But uh, it'll come back around. Do you have any uh, online services or any like you know um, conferences that you're you know you're doing uh, for folks at all? Well, or? again, those two websites will will take you if you're. Awesome. Follow the contacts down to the um, online with Ananda, which mm -hmm. is a uh, online teaching uh, service. And I have a 12-part course. I think it's 12-part for both. I have a 12-part course for uh, Physics God and for the Yugas. And you can find them both on online with Ananda. Awesome. Joseph, thank you so much for this conversation. This is, I, I had so many more questions and just you're a, a facet of knowledge and I truly appreciate you. Well, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it being on it. And let's talk again sometime in the future. I would love that. Please, let's do it. Yeah. We shall. I promise. All right. <laughs> well, well, thank you for having me on your program. And, absolutely. Uh, and God bless you and everybody who gets a chance to, to watch this. And let's just all keep moving higher and deeper. And there you have it. Wow. We got so deep on that episode. We talked about so many different things. 
just from consciousness to M theory and the quantum physics aspect of everything. We also talked about Joseph's newest book, The Physics of God, which I highly recommend. We also talked about the Yugas, the book that Joseph co-authored. And I also highly recommend that book if you want to delve into the cyclical nature of history from that perspective. I'm also super excited about Joseph's upcoming book, Breaking Through the Limits of Your Brain, which Joseph said is coming out in September. We also talked about the other book that he has that he's working on currently and in the pipeline, which talks about the scientific support for alternative or complementary healing. I can't wait for that. You can find Joseph at physicsandgod.com as well as theyugas.com. And he also talked about some online courses and teachings at onlinewithananda.com. I can't thank Joseph enough for this conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. If you're watching us, be sure to hit that like button. We hope you subscribe to the channel and hit that notification bell so you get notifications on new episodes that are coming out. Take a moment and share this episode or any of our other episodes with anyone you think might be interested in this content. If you want to find us on Instagram, you can find us at itd.jcosta. And we're on Twitter at itd underscore jcosta. Let us know what you're thinking about these episodes. This is open dialogue. We want to hear from you. Thank you all so much for joining us on this journey. And until next time, take care of one another and keep thinking for yourself. Mm-hmm.